0: Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. I'm your host, Aaron Zober. Beef is what puts the omnivore in appropriate omnivore for me. So it's time for another episode which is all about the beef. My guest today is Scott Lively. Scott is president of the organic grass-fed beef company, Raise American. He recently wrote the book For the Love of Beef, The Good, the Bad, and the Future of America's Favorite Meat. Scott shares a very similar interest to me in his love for beef. Scott, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you on because I read your book and so many of the things in it, I feel the same way. I can really relate to what you're saying. Uh, Thank you. I
0: appreciate that, I'm glad you actually read it. I have so many interviews that they actually haven't read the book or they've just read the description. So thank you for actually reading it. Oh,
1: yeah. wow. that's a shame that some don't do it because I looked at it as pretty much required material when you have a guest on and they're promoting the book.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I agree. You should read their book.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, glad to know I'm one of the ones that do it. and That puts me, I guess, in a higher tier. (laughs) Definitely. How did you first get involved with organic grass-fed beef?
0: You know, my background was actually in supply chain management and software. And I had gotten really tired and just worn out with the tech industry. This is back in the late nineties. And I was just done being a software guy. And I just wanted to do something different, something a little more meaningful. And I did love beef. I was a huge steak eater. (laughs) Didn't know anything about it. So I went with a friend and we bought 30 head of cattle in Seward, Illinois, and we Spent a summer selling them door-to-door to Chicago restaurants, and then three years later turned into a $30 million business, and then bigger and bigger, until well over $100 million in revenue today, and one of the largest organic grass-fed companies in America.
1: Wow. It's amazing. I've actually interviewed a number of people that have started in areas such as IT and programming and have gotten into food. Do you think there's something about IT that then leads you to being interested in food business?
0: I, I think there is. I think what's interesting about tech is that it touches everything whether it's food, wine, supply chain, fuel, everything is managed somehow today in some type of a software. And I think that it allows people in tech to experience other fields and really decide, what am I doing? Do I want to be doing this? Or would I like to be in you know, the egg business? Everything is managed by technology these days. So I think it gives you a good spread and allows you to learn what else you might want to do.
1: Yeah, I can see that. And so you started with Dakota Beef and now you have Raise American Can you tell us a little more about those businesses?
0: They're all actually the same. Businesses just rolled into different names over the years. Dakota Beef was sold to a company called Myers. Then I started a company called Katema, which was sold to a Ristelli Food Group, and then spun that company off from Ristelli's to merge with French,
1: which created Raised American.
0: Kind of like an evolution, if you would. It all started with Dakota Beef and evolved into bigger, greater, more companies.
1: And so, in addition to having different grassed beef ventures, you also recently wrote the book, as I explained in the introduction, For the Love of Beef. What inspired you to write this book?
0: That's a great question. You know, I thought it was going to be a fun nine-month little evening and weekend kind of a thing. And two and a half years later, I finally finished the book. It was really hard to write. But what inspired me to write it was how little people really knew about the beef they were eating. I would sit back and go to restaurants and watch people order. And just because it said, you know, angus prime they would order ordered to find whatever but they didn't ask well where's it from do you know what ranch is it all natural if you and i went to a steakhouse and we shared you know a giant bone and ribeye uh and it said prime angus we'd probably just buy it and not even worry about it but that 35 you know, that angus and ribeye might even cost us 90 to 100 dollars right right it's gonna be 16 ounces it's gonna be massive but that 35 bottle of wine we're gonna split we want to know the vintage the year these questions about certain food it's funny we don't ask a lot of questions we just kind of but it is and it's surprising to me because it was a living breeding animal that died so you could enjoy it and i'm shocked how little people knew about beef but how much of it we consume
1: that was certainly an eye-opening part of the book for me is when you talked about what's labeled as prime and how there's really very little process into determining how it's prime beef
0: yeah, really, it's a very subjective the USDA grader that looks at it and says, that looks pretty fatty to me and rolled, has an ink roll and really rolls the carcass and says, all right, you're prime. So you're right. It's, it's pretty old fashioned the way they go about grading prime choice and select.
1: Yes. So right there, there's a big misunderstanding really about what some things are that we see on beef. What would you say are other misunderstandings and possibly myths which people think about beef?
0: I think one of the biggest surprises to people is how much beef we import. I think everyone thinks the hamburger they're eating all came from an American rancher, an American producer. We import so much product from Australia. We import so much beef from Uruguay, from Canada. Americans import so much of our product that it is baffling to me how little people know that most of their hamburger was imported. And it's mixed in with thousands of pounds of other what we call lots of beef. You could be literally eating hundreds of cattle DNA in one pound of hamburger. Mm
1: -hmm. And the fact that we've done away with the country of origin law, do you think that even further complicates things of people knowing whether their beef is truly from the USA or not?
0: Well, yep, absolutely. In fact, if they take those frozen beef trimmings from other countries, and if they grind them in the United States, just by grinding them here, they're allowed to put product of the U.S. They can put product of the U.S.A. on something that they further process here. So if I take 85-15 fat to beef ratio trimmings, and I decide to grind that in Omaha, Nebraska, I can literally put product USA on it. So not only is it confusing, it's incredibly misleading.
1: It is, and by law, they can do that now. I see some stores, some of the natural grocers, they may want to actually let people know where it came from. What's your experience with that? Have you seen some grocery stores just by choice saying where the beef originated from?
0: I have seen a lot of specialty stores and a lot of your higher-end markets have gone out of their way to let people know that they know where the beef came from. But they were selective and careful about where it came from. The bottom line is the four big beef packers are really good at disguising where it comes from. So it might say family farms or whatever, but chances are, if you look at the establishment number, it's just, you know, JBS Tyson.
1: Yes, that's the thing I've been saying for a long time is the use of that four-letter word, farm, can make somebody assume that it comes from a farm and was directly from the farmer to the consumer – farm to table. I see it all the time on products. I've seen restaurants use it in the name. I call it farm washing because you use the word farm and everyone thinks how they're eating local, they're eating directly from a farmer, and it really doesn't mean anything.
0: Well, there's actually research out though that proves consumers would rather eat product from a farm than a ranch. So every, all these big packers started changing their meat labels to something farms. Heritage farms, this farms, you know. It, yes. And so you're dead on with that. It's a familiar word that makes people feel warm and fuzzy when it's a farm.
1: Right. Of course, a farm is a very broad term. I mean, a factory farm is technically still a farm.
0: (laughs) It technically is, exactly, exactly.
1: Yes. So along with myths, I know also a lot of people have fear of E. coli in their beef. And what is your thought on that? Do you think E. coli is something that people should fear?
0: I'll be honest. First of all, E. coli is always and only in ground beef. So you don't need to worry about E. coli in a steak, Mm -hmm. provided you cook the steak. If it's a raw steak, you can have E. coli. E. coli is surface level, so it doesn't penetrate the muscle meat. It can't get into the meat. But hamburger is much different because you've taken that surface meat, you've put it in a grinder, you've augered it, you've ground it, you've mushed it, you've taken all that bacteria, and you've mixed it together. And in doing so, you've allowed bacteria to incubate internally within the burger. So I would say, as long as you cook your hamburger to like, 165 degrees or higher, I only order medium well or, or well done, frankly, on burgers. The USDA honestly does a really good job of keeping us safe. The E. coli and the food interventions that are required for large manufacturers that make hamburger. It's second to none in the world. And I'm not just saying that because I have a packing house. The truth of the matter is, we eat so much burger in this world and very few people get sick from E. coli anymore. And it's because of the intervention and the quality assurance and the process flow that the USDA requires on hamburger is why we're safe. So I am not as afraid of E. coli and I'm in the meat industry. I just cook my hamburger pretty well. My steak, I like medium rare.
1: (laughs) Do you think that if it's grass-fed ground beef versus conventional ground beef, that there's even less of a chance of being harmed by the E. coli? No, because E. coli comes
0: from the processing. Okay. When they remove the hide, if there's any chance of some dirt or fecal matter from that hide getting onto the meat, that's where E. coli comes from. So it really comes into the intervention of the removal of the hide and the washing of the carcass before it is hung, aged and processed. So, Grass-fed organic meat is no more or less likely to have E. coli than conventional beef.
1: Interesting. Another part you talk about in your books a lot is the processing plants. What role do you think the processing plants play with the current problems attributed to beef in terms of humane conditions, health, and environment?
0: Well, the environment starts at the feed yard. That's where most of the environmental waste Due to water is coming from the plants themselves. You got to remember, this country processes 98 to 100,000 animals a day, every day, sometimes more. That's a lot of animals, and 85% of them come from four packing houses. So, of course, they're going to take a huge amount of energy, huge amounts of water, huge amounts of everything to run. You've got blood you've got to deal with. Each one of those animals, gallons and gallons of blood that's got to be handled and cleaned and washed. So, it is an environmental impact. If the demand wasn't there, they wouldn't be making the product. The bottom line is they got to find clean, sustainable ways to do it. One of the biggest packers, JBS, has this initiative, this environmental initiative, to become, I wouldn't say carbon neutral, but do a really good job of reducing their carbon emissions. They've got some stuff on their website it's pretty impressive. I, like, I'm not a big fan of the big packers, so I'm not endorsing these guys. Right. But the fact that they're taking the time to address it, it's more than marketing, because they're not out there doing press releases. They're just doing it. They're talking about what they're doing. So I would say that we could be heading the right direction if all four guys on that bandwagon but we won't know for a few years
1: yes and like you talk about in the book and it's been talked about a lot about how there are mainly four big beef companies for the smaller grass-fed beef companies what kind of processing plants are they able to access
0: yeah so what you're going to find is i think everybody has to find something that is unique and an attribute that is different than the commodity packing house if you're just going out there with angus or choice and you've got nothing new you're going to be beholden to the big packers if you can offer something different organic grass-fed wagyu whatever it is all natural maybe you own a heritage farm that's been in your family for generations and generations if you can sell that lineage and sell the fact that you've been doing it the same way with the same genetics forever you've got a leg up on the big packers you're going to have to find a smaller packing house that'll process just your cattle but it's very difficult for small cattle producers to go direct to market. There's a lot involved in the supply chain. You are not just having to sell your beef, you're having to sell your beef, process your beef, distribute your beef, ship your beef, and get it to consumers. It's a lot of work. So I tell anybody that's on the livestock side trying to get into the meat business, just be very careful and make sure you partner with somebody really, really, really good at the the
1: packing house level. Are you familiar with the PRIME Act, which has been presented in Congress allowing ranchers to use custom slaughterhouses? Absolutely.
0: And I encourage producers to use custom slaughterhouses. They can. The question is, can they get it done as efficiently and cost-effectively and safety, food safety-wise, as the big packers?
1: Yeah, I encourage it, too. In fact, we've had on Judith McGeary of Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance. She's been advocating that for several years, and we've done a whole show on the benefits of passing the Prime Act and having custom slaughterhouses.
0: I think as people get into more buy local movement, it's going to happen. But that meat needs to be sold more local than distributed nationally. If I'm processing in Western Colorado, I better have some customers in Western Colorado buying that meat.
1: Right. And that is still rather a new concept of people buying local meat. Another newer concept, of course, it's also a return to what was once done is people buying meat from a butcher. Would you recommend that people do that?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I think your butcher knows what he's talking about. I have a chapter in the book that says butcher your butcher with questions. Yes. <laughs> and you should
1: go in. Uh, right.
0: Yeah, you got to go in there armed and knowing. You know, does he know where his product coming? Does he ever visited a ranch? Does he understand the label claims and are they accurate and real? And I think all those things really matter. And if you don't ask yourself those questions, you might as well just go to the grocery store and buy it off the shelf.
1: Right. And of course, your book also made a good distinction between what's a true butcher and what someone at a grocery store simply Sitting behind a counter of what looks like a butcher section, but they don't really slice the meat or anything. They just pretty much grab it and package it. They stock the
0: shelf. Yeah. A lot of times it's almost like an actor. It's a guy in a white coat who's just going and getting prepackaged meat and putting it on the shelf. You're 100% right.
1: Mm-hmm. Have you seen a growth of? Grass-fed butcher shops?
0: I have not seen a butcher shop dedicated solely to grass-fed beef, but I have seen grass-fed meat show up more in the marketplace, more in, obviously, grocery stores. The fact that Costco's launched an organic program is awesome. The fact that major retailers like Kroger and Safeway have organic grass-fed private label, I think it's all very telling. The market is growing at seven times a year for the grass-fed.
1: In L.A., we've been fortunate to have some shops devoted 100% to grass-fed beef, Of course, if you really look at it, it, it's a very small number considering how large L.A. is, and there's really just a few shops that are doing 100% grass-fed beef. I think it's a start, though, certainly.
0: I would say L.A. is probably an anomaly. I'm sure in L.A. and New York you're going to find a lot of things like that. But for the rest of America, finding a butcher shop that's just doing grass-fed beef I think is going to be tough. But I applaud anybody – Anybody going to a grass fed program and sticking to it and saying, hey, we believe in this so much, we're just going to do that.
1: A lot of times I feel spoiled living in LA. I'm originally from Cleveland, and when I go back there, I don't see things at all like that. I don't know if there's any grass fed butcher shop there. Maybe one, but not much.
0: Yeah, agreed. Same thing with,
1: you know, I mean, Colorado right now. It's hard to find. a good. I haven't even seen a
0: lot of butcher shops. I did find a company that was pretty impressive called River Bear that has a butcher shop shut up in a grocery store. They're doing a great job getting a lot of local partnering with a local rancher that just processes for them. And I'm starting to see that happen a lot, that a rancher is partnering with a butcher shop and they might outsource the the slaughter and packing, but that butcher and that rancher are, are working together as partners. That's pretty impressive.
1: You make a very good point there, We don't have a lot of butcher shops in general, grass-fed or not. Really, the whole butcher shop is lost. And in L.A., for a long time, there weren't butcher shops of any type. I know there was one very well-known butcher shop before the grass-fed ones. But really, the whole idea of a butcher shop has pretty much disappeared. I think in a lot of ways, grass-fed ranchers and people who have a love of grass-fed beef that want to go into the butcher business, they're actually the ones who are reviving the butcher shop altogether, yeah,
0: unfortunately for, you know, a lot of people, those tend to be in very high-end neighborhoods. Your Greenwich, Connecticut crowd, your Beverly Hills that have those specialty meat shops.
1: They are, because if you look at the neighborhoods where they're in, in L.A., they do tend to be yeah more of the higher-end neighborhoods. Although, there was one which, I actually had them on my show, that they're in Highland Park, which is, well, it's a changing neighborhood. It's recently been gentrified, yep. but their idea was kind of to, I think in some ways, unite the two groups together. They were guys that grew up in the... Neighborhood, and now they wanted to bring something, and their hope was to make it also somewhat more affordable than the other shops. And it was really kind of, I think, a way to unite it because it can appeal to all the different groups in the Highland Park community of Los Angeles.
0: I think any way you can lower the cost and increase the quality to consumers of beef, that I applaud that, and I love people going out and being passionate about this as I am.
1: Yes, I think that's certainly a point of lowering the cost, and I know it's a concern a lot of people have. I guess there's a lot of different ways you can look at. I mean, one is. You can look for what you're truly paying for. Joel Salatin will say, have you priced cancer? But this is another way that I look at it is I think there is some inevitability of it being higher cost at the beginning. But if you look at any piece of technology, when it's first out there, it's always more and as more people want it, as there's more supply of it, supply and demand, the costs go down. It's no different than, say something such as hybrids or electric cars, when they were first out there, they were super expensive and the costs have gone down the more people want them.
0: A hundred percent, you're dead right. Inorganic you know, beef initially was so expensive, you know, the hamburger was at ribeye prices and now it's come back to reality. But all beef's expensive right now. The supply chain issues we're having with inflation, beef prices, gas prices, oil prices, everything's going through the roof. So it's, it's a tough time now to price compared
1: to the history. It is, and there's many different prices that, different farmers ranchers sell their grass fed beef at and so someone like me as my focus is all on the products I'm definitely a grass fed beef hunter who can search for the best deals and I think if people want to know they'd be surprised actually some of the deals I've been able to find for it that's rather affordable.
0: That's awesome. That's amazing. Where's your favorite place to shop for B? Where do you like to go when you want to get something quality that you know where it came from?
1: Well, so a recent one that I've been going to actually is the store Grocery Outlet. Be- yeah, sure, sure. Yes. The thing about Grocery Outlet is basically their function is they sell excess from other stores. And here's the thing. Organic has excess too. So they go to Grocery Outlet. And the one that they have there is, it's the Eel River Grass-fed beef. They get it there for a very affordable price. I know Eel River is a great company. So that's typically been my go-to for grass-fed beef.
0: Good Good for you. That's awesome. I'm happy it's accessible down there.
1: It is. Certainly in Los Angeles, there are many options for grass-fed beef. We also have many great options at farmer's markets, which I like to buy from. And you have butcher shops. And you have other places where, like you talk about in your book, you wouldn't really call it a butcher shop because they don't cut it for you, but you have more small custom stores with lots of cuts of grass-fed beef from local or regional farms. So in Los Angeles, it's pretty well supplied, but we are seeing it in a lot of other cities, not so much the individual stores, but we are seeing a lot of major supermarkets carry some portion of grass-fed beef.
0: Yeah, no, I've seen that. Every major retailer in the nation has
1: some grass-fed items it's amazing that this is all happening so fast maybe in some ways it could be happening faster but i do feel we're headed in the right direction great among these grass-fed beefs we see a lot of different labels and you do a great chapter in your book talking about all the labels what are the labels which you think are important and are there any that you see as essentially meaningless i mean (laughs) i think half of them are pretty meaningless i think you know, the all-natural
0: doesn't mean anything. I think organic could quickly be falling the wayside if they don't tighten standards really, really quick and make the organic, USD organic, not just stricter standard, but a more regulated standard. They need to go do better audits and check the ranches. They need to give those third-party agencies that do the organic certification a little more clout to go in and double-check. I would say that I don't want to trash anyone's label and somebody works really hard, but none of those labels out there that I list, humane certified, non-GMO, they're not that hard to get there are a few applications. They're attainable. And so I say that you got to talk to the person that's selling you the beef. If you can get to a producer and that producer can say, yes, I produce beef for this company and it's true, I'd call them out on the claims. Go to the website. they says, say, meet our farmer. Go call them. I have no problem reaching out and asking, do you really produce beef for this guy? I think those are important questions and we shouldn't be afraid to ask them.
1: I do think organic has somewhat fallen by the wayside, but my reason for thinking that is basically because Now there's certifications such as regenerative organic, and that encompasses a lot more. So I think that organic isn't meaning as much because it's a good start. Sure, it says what isn't sprayed on it, which does even allow for some organic pesticides, but regenerative shows the soil health and the land around it and what it's doing as far as putting carbon back in the planet. So I think regenerative organic is a much greater certification. And I wouldn't be surprised if in 10 years from now, people want to see regenerative organic on any product, whether it's meat or it's carrots. <laughs>
0: yeah. The issue with claims are like anything it's who did they come from? So the USDA organic is a government label issued by the U S department of agriculture. A lot of the other ones I said are just third-party private. They don't have a governing body or any regulatory. So, you know, I, I would love to see these regenerative, the claims be real i just don't know how verifiable it is. if somebody go out to the farm and do an audit do they do an actual test how do they know that they are returning nitrogen back into the soil and making it richer you know how do we know the claims are backed by something with teeth and not just an application and i paid the 150 bucks so i got the certification that's what concerns me about any of these third-party certifications
1: so would you like to one day see the usda have a regenerative organic certification program
0: I'd like to see the USDA take regenerative farming serious at all.
1: Well, that is very true. I'd like
0: to see them say we can't keep depleting the soil. It starts with the soil. If we can put nutrients back into the soil. And one teaspoon of good soil is millions of microorganisms. It's an entire habitat in there. People don't understand. It's not just about pouring a chemical to make something grow. You've got to take care of the soil. And soil health is as important as gut health these days. And I just don't think the
1: USDA is even close to understanding that. I don't think so either. There isn't really a lot of support of that. There's support of it from ranchers but I know that even farming unions, there isn't really much support among it.
0: Because they don't need to. There's such a short supply of food and Everyone's, you know, people just aren't concerned enough about where the food comes from. They started to be, the trend kind of died. And now that food is so expensive everywhere, I think people are just going to be happy to be fed soon. And I think regenerative is important as hell. But I really hope people that are out there doing it, claiming it on their labels, are really doing it right.
1: Yeah, it's certainly a new process. And we have a lot to see about what comes from it. I'm glad that at least the term is starting to be on people's radar now. I agree. I think it's important. And while I know that the organic certification Is not perfect. I know a lot of people do look for organic on grass-fed beef because while saying it's just grass-fed shows that it's given only grass and no grains, no soy. A lot of people want the organic because they want to know that nothing was sprayed on the grass itself. Yeah. Do you think that that reason it is good to have organic certification on it? I think it's not
0: just that. It's that the animal didn't receive any antibiotics, hormones, or pesticides. That the animal, the feed the animal ate, didn't have any herbicides, pesticides, and was sprayed. I think that it's a checkoff that should make you feel at least, hey, somebody went and verified this, and it's a government agency, and it feels real. So yeah, I think that that's really important.
1: What's your thought on some of the certification programs to be 100% grass-fed? I think
0: that the American Grass-Fed Association is doing a good job and not just handing that out to anybody. I think they have a serious audit. I think they're very smart about who they extend that to and not to. And I'm glad to see that's not on everything yet because that to me means it's real.
1: I agree. Yes. I think the American Grass-Fed Association is doing a great job with their certification. I do too. And so along with the different certifications for beef, a big part of your book is also just like it's called For the Love of Beef. And you talk about the traditions we have with eating all kinds of different types of beef, hamburgers, hot dogs, steaks. I love also that you talk about some cuts that people aren't typically buying that they should. And after reading your book, my goal is to now actually go to my rancher at the farmer's market and buy some of these cuts. So what are some ones which you would recommend that aren't the most common cuts?
0: Yeah, I really like oxtail. I think oxtail is phenomenal.
1: Oh, oxtail is great. Yeah. I've had that one because I was given that actually a recommendation from... Pam Schoenfeld, who's on my show, she mentioned that oxtail is a great source of collagen. So, yeah, I had that, loved it.
0: It really is. And it's, and it's really tender if you do it right. It's a really nice product. Mm-hmm. I also like what's called flap meat, F-L-A-P, flap meat. It's a belly meat. It's great. It's tender. You go in a stir-fry, but you can cook that whole thing on a grill like a brisket. It's just delicious. Oh, wow. Any others? i like the asabuco i like the flank and the skirt are phenomenal i love a good flank skate the flat iron which is the chuck side rib and the tri-tip tri-tips are really not popular in east coast at all but i know west coast people know what they are i think it's a phenomenal cut
1: yeah it was a little interesting for me to see you say that the tri-step isn't that popular because yeah on the west coast you see it all the time in barbecue restaurants yeah. of course yeah it's still not as popular in barbecue restaurants i say brisket but that makes more sense now that Having lived on the West Coast, I'm a little more familiar with that.
0: Yeah. On these, they cut it into pieces and call it steak tip, uh, but it's just a tri-tip. So good.
1: Yeah. Skirt steak is another one, too. I talk to people in Cleveland, and they're like, what's skirt steak? But yeah, in LA, it's big because it works well with a lot of Mexican foods. It can be great in like a burrito or a taco.
0: Yeah. Great Latin steak. Yeah. Great for tacos. Great for stir-fry. I love skirt steak. All those are, you know, under $5 cuts of meat, and they're phenomenal.
1: Yeah. So that's another way which people can address the concern of grass-fed beef is too expensive. Exactly, And do you have a favorite cut of steak?
0: I do. I'm a big
1: ribeye guy. I love a boneless ribeye.
0: Yeah, Sometimes I like the Delmonico, but I just like a good medium-rare ribeye. Although the story I tell about making a New York strip every Thursday with grilled onions alone, that's a true story. I
1: make that every Thursday. Mm, Nice. Yeah, well, those are my two go-to steaks typically are the strip and the ribeye. I like to switch back and forth between them.
0: Agree. One's got good marble, one's got good bite. Yeah,
1: And there was a very interesting point in your book where you talked about how cooking it with the bone in doesn't really make any difference on the taste of the meat itself because I know a lot of people who swear by that for beef and other cuts of meat and things like chicken. I do like to cook chicken with the bone in, but with beef, I typically don't because I just find it's so hard to cut around it and you don't actually... I feel like then I waste some of the beef.
0: I think if you're a really talented chef and you have hours to prepare and maybe do a reverse sear, uh, that a bone-in product can be really enjoyable. And I talk about in the book cooking, you know, teepee style, like cooking it bone-side down for a while, right. letting that bone heat up, and that bone will actually permeate and heat the meat so you don't have that really raw membrane between the bone and the meat. But I don't have time for that. That's an hour-and-a-half, two-hour process that you got to be really skilled and really, really patient. I want to throw my steak on the grill, have it done in literally 12 minutes and be inside. I wouldn't say I'm the best steak cook. I just know when I've had a good one.
1: Me too. And you also say that the fat doesn't really make a difference as far as how the steak cooks. Well,
0: the internal muscle fat right. does. The IMF, the, the marble does. But the exterior fat on the side, if you're going to grill it. That's just burning off. That's just flaming up. It's not permeating and getting absorbed into the steak somehow. There's a membrane between there. Your butcher just left that on because he's charging the same price per pound for that one inch of fat as he did the ribeye. You know, I always tell him to trim it off.
1: Could you also, if you have it kept on, could you use it actually then to render it for tallow? Well, if I do
0: buy a fatty piece of meat, here's how I cook it. I actually render the fat really, really well. And I start cooking the steak in a cast iron skillet in that fat, Mm -hmm. and then I'll finish it in the oven. So I'll do a sear on both sides in its own tallow or fat, and then I will put that right in the oven and then do a high 425-degree cook in the skillet and then get it out. The whole process is less than 20 minutes. It's phenomenal.
1: amazing. In regards to the future of beef, as that is part of the book title, where do you see the future of beef headed? Do you think it's headed in the right direction or the wrong direction?
0: I think you're having, like everything else, there's going to be two tiers of beef. There's going to be cheap beef, and there's going to be expensive beef. There's going to be beef that the common man and the blue collar guys, the burger guys eat. And there's going to be this high end beef that the Wagyu's of the world that people are still paying ridiculous money for. I think that it's going to be as classist and socio economically diverse as the country
1: already is. It is. And of course, there's also the issue then of all these fake meats. How do you think they contribute to how people look at beef overall? Well, I've seen these companies grow, you know,
0: beyond the possible burger and stuff, but they're not growing behest of meat eaters. Meat eaters aren't switching. It's just vegetarians and people concerned about red meat consumption are eating more of that stuff. I'm actually already considering starting a second book called What's Your Beef? And I'm going to take the American beef from cattle, different types of it. I'm going to take lab-grown beef, plant-based beef, and just talk about all the different attributes and changes and what's different between them because I think people would be surprised to know how many ingredients – are in their plant based burger that they've never even heard of and can't pronounce.
1: That is a big thing that's overlooked and I did a whole show on that of looking at what exactly is in beyond beef and impossible burger and it's not what people think because they think, oh, it's plants and it's also it's heavily refined plants too. People say it's peas in it, it's not peas, it's pea protein.
0: Yeah, soy pea protein. It's not peas. It's the soy pea protein hydrogenate. <laughs>
1: You're right. So, yeah, I think that would be an interesting look comparing all of them. And, yeah, I believe you're right that really the people that are getting it are people that weren't eating meat before. Or, I mean, I do know some of the flexitarians, some of them are getting the Beyond Meat and the Impossible Burger. But the thing is, they were eating the ones that were around before that, too. These are just more famous names. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that it's really gotten anyone off of beef.
0: No, I don't think it has either. Look, it's on fast food menus. It's at Burger King. Come on. And it doesn't even sell that much. Just, it's one of those things where a small minority of people demand it and it gets on a menu, but very few people order it.
1: Yes. And when you see it at fast food places, really what that tells me is that their concern was never about health, but basically they want a share of the QSR industry. Exactly, exactly.
0: Well, it's just like this. I mean, you know, 95% of beverages in America are kosher beverages. Well, only 1.8% of America eats kosher. So it's like... A small minority, a huge crowds to do anything they want.
1: Mm-hmm. Where do you see grass fed beef overall 10 years from now? Do you think it's playing a larger part and it's more common?
0: Oh, it's growing, yeah. I think grass fed is going to continue to grow at crazy rates. I think it's seven times a year. I think what's going to happen there is you're going to get better breed. You're going to get better guys that know how to feed grass, or I would say grass alternatives better. There's hemp being used out there, there's seaweed, anything besides grain and corn and soybean. And I think grass fed beef is going to taste better. I'm already seeing choice grass-fed meat in Texas being sold at HEB. So I think grass-fed market is set to explode, and I think there's nothing but upside for it. And I think it's going to get better and better. They're going to get better at it, better cattle, better feed ingredients, and it's just going to taste better and grow.
1: I hope so. Yes. In your book, you talked about how some people say grass-fed beef is – to gamey, which you disputed that. Have you seen people become more accepting of the taste of grass-fed beef that maybe had some reservations about it in the beginning?
0: I think yes, but I also think people have learned to prepare it better and realize that they have a lot of role in how that tastes. You can't just slap it on the grill like a burger. You gotta sear it and season it, and you gotta take your time with it.
1: I think so too. I think that actually. Doing grass-fed beef right, there's ways to do it right, really going back to how the cows are raised and the grass that they're grown on from the beginning. Yeah, exactly. And how old the animal was. Yeah.
0: Age of the animal is a huge indicator of flavor.
1: Yeah. I know my friend Peter Ballerstedt, who works in the business of selling grass to these farms, he talked about how if people think grass-fed beef is too lean, then they're not raising the cows right. <laughs>
0: There's ways of getting a good marble and a good eating experience on grass-fed beef. And as more people get into it, you're gonna see more of it.
1: Absolutely, so as we know more about it, we know where to prepare it from the farm to the table.
0: Yeah, and that's what it should be. You should know the people behind your food. Just like you wanna know the vintner, the wine guy, just like you wanna know the guy that grew your avocados. You should wanna know the man that raised the 1,250 pound animal that you're eating, or woman. A lot of women ranchers.
1: When you first became involved with grass-fed beef, would you have expected that the grass-fed beef industry is where it is today?
0: No, I thought it would still be this niche market. I thought organic would grow, but I can't believe how fast the grass-fed
1: grew along with it. Me either. I didn't think there would be like that right now. From when I first read the Omnivore's Dilemma, that was maybe about thirteen, fourteen years ago. I didn't think we'd be seeing all this.
0: I'm shocked. I'm actually quite pleased, and I hope it continues. I hope
1: so, too. Well, I think it will, based on what we're talking about.
0: If we really want to look at the environmental changes our food has on the world, grass-fed beef is the best chance we have to lower the impact of carbon we put into the air and we put it into the ground. It needs to go to the ground, not the air.
1: Yes, and I think that that's one that people are having a little hard time understanding. I think people do more understand the health benefits of grass-fed beef, but I think there's still a lot of work to be done on explaining to people how Grass-fed beef is important for the planet and for reversing climate change. I
0: agree. I really struggled, whether to focus my book on grass-fed and the case for grass-fed, but I really just wanted my first book to be about the beef industry as a whole and really get people to know it's not what you think it is, and there's a lot more out there to it, and you need to educate yourself. And then I think my next book about what is your beef, what are you eating, the differences, and I think I will write a book about the benefits of grass-fed beef to the world.
1: Yeah, I think your book was a good overview of the whole thing, and I think it is important to talk about the whole culture and the love that people have of the meat because That's really who this movement should be targeted to.
0: Yeah, people that love beef. Exactly.
1: Right. Yeah, because there's some that focus, I think, too much on just attacking the whole vegan world. And people have asked me, I said, oh, have you gotten someone to not be vegan? And no, no, that's not at all my goal. But what it is, is it's I want to target the people who love beef and let them know that they don't have to give up their love for it. They just need to make better choices of what they source from. I agree.
0: And if you're not educated, you won't know the questions to ask. You got to know what you don't know, and you got to be willing to ask the questions. I would say don't be afraid to feel like the idiot in the room. Ask the second and third question. I do it all the time.
1: Yeah, me too. Well, that's why I do the show. <laughs> So we're just about out of time, but before we go, is there anything else that you'd like to let the listeners know in regards to beef and specifically grass-fed beef?
0: I would just say this. Listen, eat what you like. Don't let anyone, including me, convince you that you got to do it this way. It's got to be this, it's got to be a filet, it's got to be grass, eat what you like. And the second thing is ask a lot of questions. Whatever you're eating, if it's beef, it had to die for you to enjoy it. So be respectful of that and ask a lot of questions. Where did it come from? Do you know who raised it? Google the establishment number on the packaging you have at the grocery store. See where your food came from. I think it's the most important thing is to know the source of your food, who brought it to you, and then you can educate yourself accordingly.
1: Absolutely. And we are seeing more products Beef, eggs, dairy—all kinds of products that have these codes now on the packages where you can look up and learn about the farm that it came from. And
0: you should exactly.
1: Yeah, I love it. So, let the listeners know where they can go online to learn more about Raise American and your book for the love of beef.
0: Well, you can go to raiseamerican.com. That's r-a-i-s-e American. Dot com, and for the love of beef, you can. Buy it on Amazon. You can buy it on Target.com at Brian's and Noble. Or you can go to ForTheLoveOfBeef.com. It's right there for you. And all the different links point to each other.
1: Excellent. It's a pleasure having you on this program.
0: Aaron, a really good show. Great questions. I appreciate
1: them. Oh, thank you. Glad to hear you liked it. That's all for this episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. And that's a wrap for 2021. I'll be back sometime next year with new episodes. Follow me on social media for more information on the show's return in 2022. And to make sure you never miss any of my podcasts, Go to iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher, and subscribe to The Appropriate Omnivore. You can also listen to all of my podcasts on my website, appropriateomnivore.com. There you can find recipes from the guests I interview, plus all of my articles covering lifestyles in the world of real food. Until next year, my pantry is officially closed.